0: Thank you, Pastor Mark. Well, good morning, church family. it 's good to be with you this morning. Happy Independence Day weekend. hope you 're getting to spend some time with loved ones on your extended holiday weekend. I know our family has had some good time together, and, and we 're excited this afternoon to spend some time with our small group at a little barbecue, uh, so that 'll be a good time if you 're new with us, uh, welcome. My name is Nick Lees, and I serve as the senior pastor. I have the privilege of opening up god 's Word with you this morning, and we 're going to be jumping right back into our series in, in Micah in the Old Testament. Uh, It's a series that we've titled Faithful God, Unfaithful People, and this is our second to last week in this series. So uh, today we're going to be covering chapter six. Next week we're wrapping it up as we study chapter seven. And so what that means is two weeks from today um, we're going to go back to our series in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to pick up right where we left off at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm excited to both finish up Micah but also get back into Matthew. And if you've had the opportunity to be with us all year, I hope that you've been blessed by these studies. We've had an opportunity to learn a lot about God's plan for His people, His redemptive plan, His plan of rescue for His people. We've also had the opportunity to learn a lot about God's character, that He is a faithful, a righteous, a holy, a just God. And those two things combined, God's plan and God's character, have led Him to have a plan for us, and we as His people must respond to that plan, right? We are called to respond to God's character and His plan for us, in obedience. There's an implication for our lives. We ought to be changed and changing. And what we're going to see today in Micah 6 is all three of those come together. God's character, God's plan, and then our response, what we ought to be doing as a result of God's plan and character. So you ready to get into the Word today? Let's do it. Let's turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Micah, chapter 6. That's page 663 if you grabbed one of our Bibles on the way in. And for those of you who are online, I'll just remind you real quick that The sermon slides are available on the website in PDF format. So you can grab that if you'd like to be able to see everything that's on the slides. Let's go ahead and turn our attention to the word of the Lord. Here's what it says in Micah chapter 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam son of Beor answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. We're going to stop there for just a minute. Let's think about what we've read. What you're hearing is God bringing a covenant lawsuit against his people. And actually, in this case, there's a covenant lawsuit being brought against God as well. And this is very similar to how the book of Micah started. If you were here with us back in week one, we heard a very similar type of thing in chapter one, verse two. Back then, uh, God had called all of the earth to hear because God had a a problem, had an indictment against Israel. Well, now we hear God saying to Israel, hey, you stand up. You declare your case against me before the mountains and the hills. The created order is being called to give witness to Israel's contention with God. But then in verse 2 of chapter 6, God says to the mountains, hear my indictment against the people. So God also has a contention with Israel. The scene that's being set up here is that there is a problem. Uh, The Israelites are upset with the way that God has treated them. And if you're familiar with the book of Micah, because you've been studying it all year or all the last six weeks, you remember these are the people who were rebellious. These are the people who are corrupt. These are the people who have been treating one another poorly, whose leadership has literally been using their power and authority to abuse those who are weaker than them and to take their land. They had practiced in all kinds of defiling practices. They'd made themselves enemies of God, and yet they're upset with God? What kind of pride is that, right? That's that's very prideful. Now what would you expect next? Let's pretend you haven't read verses 3 through 5. What would you expect after Israel makes a contention with God? You, you might expect God to say, well let me just put you in your place for a moment. Let me remind you of how proud and arrogant you're being. Here's the laundry list of sins that you've committed against me and how you've been unfaithful to the covenant. Is that what he does? No, that's not what he does in verses 3 through 5. What does he do instead? Well, surprisingly, he treats them with compassion. Look at what it says again. He says, oh, my people. That's the language of the covenant. God is remembering and reminding them that they're his people and he's their God. Maybe even more surprising, rather than going on the offensive and blasting them with the truth of all that they've done wrong, instead he asks them two questions. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Now, those questions are meant to put Israel on the defensive, right? It's meant to make them think, to evaluate, why are we contending with God? And what we hear in the rest of verses 3 through 5, really what God is doing is, is establishing, I'm innocent. God has done what is right. You see, the Israelites, they don't have any good answers for those questions. Because the reality is, God has been gracious with them time and time and time again throughout their history. We see in verses 4 and 5, the faithful covenant loyalty of Yahweh. He rescued and redeemed them from their captivity and enslavement back in Egypt. He then provided them with wise and capable leadership in the form of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He gave those leaders the law so that the nation could know how to be holy as He is holy, so they could enjoy His presence and be His people. And those things ought to have engendered a response of faithfulness and of loyalty from the Israelites. That was the appropriate response. That's how they should have responded. And then in verse 5, he re- references some specific situations from their past. He says, Hey, remember these instances from your history. And the first one is Balak and Balaam. That's from Numbers chapter 22. Balak was the king of Moab uh, during the time when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt. And as God was bringing them through their, you know, very circuitous route to the promised land, he helped them defeat some enemies along the way. And so uh, Balak had seen the Israelites defeat the Amorites, and he was scared. He thought, well, what if Moab is next? What if, what if they're going to conquer us next? And so he reaches out to Balaam, who was a prophet in that area, and he says, I want you to speak a curse against Israel I want you to curse them that will allow, in a way that will allow me and my nation to defeat the Israelites in battle. That was his request. Well, do you know what happened next? God shows up. Listen to what happened in Numbers 22, verses 7 through 12. It says this, So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight. And I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Now that is just the start of this whole series of interactions between King Balak and Balaam, and ultimately between Balaam and God. And uh, if you read over the course of the next two chapters, Numbers twenty-three and twenty-four, recount all of those interactions. And I would encourage you to write down that reference, Numbers twenty-three and twenty-four, and go back and read that later today. It's actually quite humorous in light of what happens. Uh, God says, look, the Israelites are blessed. They're my people. But that doesn't stop King Balak from trying to uh, bribe and cajole Balaam into doing something, to curse the people. Not just once, not even twice, not even three times, but four times he tries. And each time uh, when Balaam opens his mouth, what comes out is a blessing for the people of Israel. And in that fourth blessing, in the fourth oracle, Balaam says to King Balak, the people of Israel will crush your nation. They will defeat Moab. That's like the last thing that King Balak wants to hear, right? That's not what he's giving him money for. But that's what happens when you oppose the one true God. God shows up, he protects and provides for his people. And now through the prophet Micah, as we're reading this chapter today, God's calling his people to remember that, that he had done that. Now, the second historical event that God calls them to remember is his miraculous provision when they're getting ready to cross the Jordan River into the promised land. You may remember that uh, they sent ahead some spies to the city of Jericho to spy out the land, and to, specifically to look at that city. And those spies came back and they gave a good report. And they said, we, we need to enter into the land God has given it to us. The problem is, there's this massive Jordan River in the way. Flowing. Uh, How's this whole nation supposed to cross it? Well, do you know what happens next? God shows up. We see this in Joshua 2 and 3. And he says, hey, when the feet of the priests who are carrying the ark touch the water of the Jordan, he will cause the waters to pull back and to be stopped. So listen to what happens in Joshua 3, verses 15 through 17. As soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Listen to this little aside that he gives. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Helpful little note there. He's saying the river was raging. The waters were high. At that time, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. At Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. Pretty amazing. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on the dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the whole nation finished passing over the Jordan. God showed up in a miraculous way. He provided and protected for his people yet again made a way for them to enter the promised land. Now those are just two of the many events that he could have called to mind for the Israelites to remember and to process. But the point he's making is you haven't remembered. You have not lived in light of the faithfulness and covenant loyalty of God. You haven't appreciated my provision, my grace, my mercy towards you. If you look again at verse 8 in Micah 6, or sorry, verse 5 in Micah 6, look what he says. Oh, my people, remember. Well, why does he want them to remember? You read a little bit later in that verse, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Their remembering was meant to lead them to a knowledge of God and, and all that he had done, his righteous ways. It was meant to provoke a response in them. Now, I know you're all eagerly awaiting for that first blank on the handout, right? And so let's pause for a second and let me help you get this. The sermon title today is God's World, God's Ways. It's taken from the idea that we see here in Micah 6 that there is a creator who's over all. And he has the right to tell his creation how to live. We are to follow him. That's what we're hearing in this covenant lawsuit in Micah 6. They have, they have disobeyed. They haven't walked in God's ways and so he's calling them to account for it. So what I want to do with you this morning is talk about what you need to know about living in God's world. And here's what, the first thing you need to know. God's character informs his actions. God's character informs his actions. And all throughout these verses here at the beginning of Micah 6, Micah 6, 3 through 5, you're hearing how God's character is informing his actions, his, his faithfulness and his Uh, justice has led him to keep his word to Abraham. He kept his covenant. He made Abraham's descendants into a great nation. And then he graciously rescued and redeemed them out of captivity in Egypt. He mercifully provided them with godly leaders like Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And through those leaders, he graciously gave them the law. He intended for his people to be righteous. He intended for them to be able to live in his presence To enjoy an orderly and fulfilling life with their God. God's character is all over this accounting. And every single one of these actions are informed by His character. And and what they did is, this warrants a response from the Israelites. They have been on the receiving end of such extravagant faithfulness, grace, justice, mercy. So as His people, they ought to respond in kind. What kind of responses do you think would be appropriate for the Israelites in the face of God's faithfulness, graciousness, merciful, mercy, justice, all of that? How about this? The things that DJ challenged us with earlier, rejoicing? How about, thank you, God. Thank you for making a way for us. Thank you for redeeming sinful people like us and making it possible for us to be holy. That'd be an appropriate response. Maybe it would be obedience. God, we're going to keep the covenant that we've made with you through Moses, We want to do our part. Or how about love for God? God, you're involved in the details of our life. You care about us enough to come down and to provide a way for us to dwell in your midst. Lord, we love you. We want to pursue you. We want to know you more and more. Or how about this maybe the pursuit of holiness? God, you've given us your law, you've told us to be holy as you are holy. We're going, to get, we're going to get after that, Lord. We want to know that. We want to be that, that people that you've called us to be. And yet, as we've heard uh, throughout Micah chapters 1 through 5, that's not how the Israelites responded at all. Instead of responding to God's character and his actions with obedience, they're misusing and abusing their power for selfish gain. They turned aside, they've begun worshiping the false gods of the nations around them, and they've begun practicing all kinds of defiling things. They've made themselves enemies of God, rebelled against the leaders that he had given them. And all of those wicked responses to God's character and his actions, that's what leads to this covenant lawsuit here in Micah 6. That's why God has a problem with his people. They had the opportunity to repent and to follow him, and they have not done it. And God is in the right, and they're in the wrong. I love how commentator Kenneth Barker puts it. Here's what he says. He, God, was in the right. They, the Israelites, were the ones in the wrong. In fact, in view of all that their suzerain, I know that's an odd word, think sovereign, and all that their sovereign has done for them, all that their sovereign ruler has done for them, the people of his kingdom should have rendered total allegiance and full commitment to him and to the terms of his covenant with them. Instead, they were unfaithful, rebellious covenant breakers. The great king, on the other hand, had been completely faithful. All these instances of God's interposition prove how faithful he is to his promises, how he cares for his elect. So the people's complaints are baseless. God was in the right. He was innocent. They were in the wrong. They had no reason to complain against God for the way that he was treating them. Now, let's think about this for a second. We believe from the testimony of Scripture that God's character is the same yesterday, today, and into eternity. And so if we're learning from Micah that God is faithful and just and righteous, merciful and gracious back then with the Israelites, what does that mean that he is today? It's faithful and righteous and merciful and gracious and just, all of those things and so on, right? And if back then the expectation for Israel and their response to God's character was total allegiance and complete commitment, what does that mean that God expects from his people today? The same, total allegiance and complete commitment. So what does that mean your response to God ought to be? Are you completely committed to the God of heaven and earth? Is your allegiance with Him? Let's talk about what that looks like. Let's flesh that out by continuing to read in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Here's what it says. Now we're shifting. This is not God speaking any longer. In verses 6 and 7, this is Micah uh, speaking on behalf of the people of Israel. Here's what he says. "'With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high?' Now I imagine verse 8 is one that you're familiar with. Many of you have probably heard this one before. But what we need to do is you've got to understand it in in light of the context of the two verses that come before it, verses 6 and 7. These are the questions that the Israelites are asking of God. And and essentially they're saying, God, what's it going to take for you to be okay with us? What's it going to take to appease you, to have your favor again? Do I need to give you burnt offerings? Do I need to give you a calf a year old? which as a side note, that was like the perfect age for an animal sacrifice under the law, one-year-old. That's why they say that. It goes on in verse 7, gets more intense. God, is it is it the amount of what I'm offering you? Do I need to give you thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Is that what you want, God, in order to be happy with us? Just got to up the ante here? But their words are betraying them. They think that they can buy off God, that somehow they can say, well, God, if I just give you enough things, then you can uh, look the other way on all this sin in my life over here. It gets worse. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Oh, no, please don't say that. This is a big deal because God has explicitly told the people in his law, you are not to offer child sacrifices like the pagan nations around you. That is a forbidden practice for you. And here they are. This shows how far they've gone away from God's laws and his ways. They don't even remember what he's called them to. They offer up a child sacrifice. God, will that that please you? They're thinking like pagans. And before uh, you or I look down on them, Let us not forget that this pattern is often repeated today. Many people profess to follow God, but don't spend any time reading this. And instead of drawing near to God and learning what He wants, they do all sorts of good works to try to appease Him instead. So let's be careful about judging anyone. Well, God sets them straight through Micah. In verse 8, God says to them what He requires. And in fact, what he does, he doesn't actually tell them. He says, I'm going to remind you of what I've already told you. This was not new information to the nation of Israel. They had had the privilege of hearing this many years ago. Let me go back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. Listen to how similar this teaching is. It's not word for word the same, but it's very similar. It says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. That was in the law that they had received 700 years earlier. But the Israelites had had 700 years to learn this and to get really good at obeying it. Micah 6 verse 8 is not new information to them. What does God want? What pleases Him? He says it right there, Micah 6, 8. I want the things that are good. These are the things that I require of my people, whether it's the Israelites back then or whether it's His people today. I want you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly, and perhaps a, a better word there is obediently or wisely with your God. That's what God wants of us. That's what's required of us. It's not optional for followers of Jesus Christ or for the Israelites. And that brings us to the second thing you need to know about living in God's world. God has told you how to live. God has told you how to live. We don't have to wonder, what does God want? What's it going to take for him to be happy or pleased? He states it really clearly right here in the Word. He gives us the opportunity to pick this up and study it, to learn from it, to apply it to our lives, to allow ourselves to be transformed by His Word. And you don't have to try to bribe God. You don't have to do what the Israelites are trying to do, although, frankly, many people still try to do that today. Now, think about this. In our day and age, we don't really have people offering up burnt offerings. No one's really thinking, I ought to go out to the stable and find a one-year-old calf and sacrifice. it. That's not really what we hear today. People aren't saying, well, if I just bring thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil, then God will be pleased. No, instead we hear things like this, or thought things like this, perhaps. God, I've brought you my perfect church attendance. God, I I offer up to you my weekly tithe. God, I I bring to you my put-together family or i offer you my participation in small group and serving opportunities lord i've brought to you my thousands of prayers before dinner lord i've brought to you my voting records i've brought you taking my kids to youth group or my social media advocacy do you hear the theme that's woven throughout all of that the, the consistent theme is lord i've i've brought you my good works I have brought you my good life. Isn't that enough? Won't that please you and appease you? And that focus on behaviors misses the point. What God wants more than external acts is our heart. He wants total allegiance and complete commitment from his people. Those external behaviors are well and good, but only if they're connected to an internal desire to worship and love the Lord. And that's a concept that's repeated throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament. So let me take you on a quick survey of a few passages just to make that point. We're going to go back into Hosea. Hosea 6, verse 6 says this, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Then King David pens this in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And then we have the privilege of hearing from Jesus' own mouth in Matthew 23, a very similar type of teaching. Three times he's going to bring, at least in the passage I'm sharing, three times we're going to hear these teachings to the scribes and Pharisees. Here's how it starts. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. They'd miss the point of what God was intending for them. Here's what Jesus says next He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed, self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Right? They were focused on the external behaviors rather than on their heart. Listen to the last one here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful. But within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. There's a consistent theme in those passages. God is calling for your actions to be directly connected to your inner man or inner woman, that you worship him, you love him. That's what God wants for his people to delight in him. And so if you think that following God is mainly about the good works, the the words or the the acts or the thoughts that you have, you've missed the point. That's the problem with many social justice movements in our day. They've missed the point. They take the verse here in Micah 6, 8, and they misuse it. They say, well, we're doing justice as they fight oppression and seek to right societal wrongs. We're, We're loving kindness as they meet the needs of those who are in a weaker position. And, and that's well and good, those kind of actions, but only if they're connected to an inward heart desire to worship and please the Lord, if they're connected to walking humbly or obediently with the God of heaven and earth. You see, what ultimately empowers you to do justice and love mercy is an authentic, obedient relationship with God. That's what's missing in many social justice movements today. You cannot do true justice and mercy divorced from God's will and ways. They go hand in hand. This is God's world, and He's the source of truth. So He gets to say what's right and wrong, what's just and unjust. We need to know that, and we need to obey that and follow that. As the Creator, He's the one who gets to determine how we live. As His creation, you get to walk in His ways. The only way to do that is by allowing God to do a redemptive work in your life. That's the grand irony of of it all, that we as his creation cannot do what he's called us to do until he empowers us to do it. See, in the Old Testament, they had the law, and that pointed them to what it meant to be a righteous, holy people, to be able to be in God's presence. But the problem was they couldn't do it. They couldn't obey. So God sent a prophet named Jeremiah who spoke of a new covenant that he would make, A covenant where it wasn't about a law written on stone, but rather the law being put in their heart. God was going to do a transformation in his people. He was going to enable them to be obedient. He was going to make a people that truly loved him. How does he do that? Well, we know it's from sending his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to live a perfect life in our place and to die in our place, to take the wrath of God so that we could be forgiven. Jesus is the one who provides that inner transformation and it's by sending his spirit that we are able to be made new. Jeremiah foretold of that, but we didn't know what it meant until Jesus Christ came to walk this earth and live the perfect life. But then we have the privilege of reading about it in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 17. Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the transformation that that Jeremiah was pointing ahead towards, that God planned for his people, this inward transformation. And it only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He's the one who makes you new. Being united to his death, burial, and resurrection means your old self is put to death. And now you can live as as a new creation, a new man or a new woman, Walking with Jesus Christ. Now, verse 18 is not on the slide there, but what it says at the beginning of it is all this is from God. All this is from God. What you're hearing is it's always been God's plan to rescue and redeem his people through faith in Jesus Christ. It's always been God's plan to rescue and redeem his people through faith in Jesus Christ. And once you're made new in Jesus, then. You can truly do justice and love kindness and walk obediently with your God. Doing justice means to stand up for what God says is right and to oppose what God says is wrong. He's the one who gets to set the standard. And we we live and do justice through His standard and through the grid that He has given us. Loving kindness means that you come alongside those who are weak and are marginalized to speak or to act on their behalf to provide them with resources in the name of your God. right again, it's linked to your faith in your God. It's driven by your faith in your God, and it's never done in a way that's contrary to His Word, our source of truth. And I thought it would be helpful to give two specific examples of this to kind of help drive the point home. One of them is positive, one of them is negative. Here's the positive example. It's the organization known as Compassion International. Their mission statement is releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. They expand on that a little bit more on their website. I'll put it on the screen here. Here's what it says. Releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name is a mission about love. We love God, and we demonstrate our love and live out our faith by extending care to others and living out the meaning of compassion. Do you hear what is driving their doing justice and loving kindness? It's their love of God. It's their faith in God. That is the baseline that they operate from and and how they extend compassion to those who are hurting. That's biblical justice. That's biblical kindness. And I'm excited to tell you that our church is going to be partnering with Compassion International on two Sundays on Sunday, July 19th. Um, We're going to call it Compassion Sunday because it's going to be a day for you to hear some testimonies from folks who have... Uh, partnered with Compassion in the past in sponsoring children, um, and, and then we're going to have a, a booth here. We're going to have a table where you can come and learn more about their ministry, and there'll actually be children with their profile on the table if you would like to partner in sponsoring an international child, helping lift them out of poverty. That's a great way for us uh, to do justice and to love kindness, just like Micah six eight talks about. And if you're here and and you already are sponsoring a child or have done so in the past, I would love to hear from you. So grab me today or shoot me a message this week. I would love to hear your story about how that's gone for you. So would you please be willing to do that? That's our positive example of doing justice. Now let me share with you a negative one. It's the movement known as Black Lives Matter. Now I know that even mentioning that name is probably going to get me some flack from some of you or maybe a lot of you. Maybe not anyone in this room. Maybe people that hear this later. I'm not bringing it up lightly. Just this past week, I had the privilege of being in a meeting with a group of local pastors. And a particular pastor, an African-American man, if that helps you understand the story, came to share his experience of attending the last week's meeting of the local chapter of Black Lives Matter here in Des Moines. He just wanted to go and hear what they're about and learn more about them. Here's the three-word summary of the meeting for him. It was scary. What he witnessed and heard was a group of people who were not concerned with biblical justice. They were not concerned about who God is or what God says. In fact, they functioned as their own gods, and they determined what was right or wrong, and they aren't willing to tolerate anyone who gets in their way. Didn't matter if you share their skin color or not. If you do not affirm their ideology and goals, you are the enemy, and you need to get out of their way. That's almost verbatim what they said. That is not biblical justice. It's a godless ideology that has nothing to do with the truth of God or his word. And so whatever they're seeking to achieve, it will not please God because it is divorced from a heart that loves the Lord. It's rooted in a worldview that hates God. And there's a lot of other things that were said at that meeting that would validate what I'm telling you, um, but I'm just going to leave it at there for, for now. But I also believe that after saying something like that, I need to make a little bit of a, an additional explanation here. And it starts with this, do black lives matter? And the answer is, of course they do. Black lives are sacred. They're made in the image of God, just like you and me. They are men and women, boys and girls, who will spend eternity somewhere, just like you and me. And it's an injustice that people of color have suffered greatly throughout our nation's history at the hands of wicked men and women. Very akin to what we're reading about in Micah. Wicked men and women were opposing those who were weaker. And it's good for us to stand against injustice. But we must do so, not from a position of ungodly ideology, but rather from a position of biblical justice and loving kindness. It's not appropriate for us to adopt an anti-God ideology to try to accomplish what God intends, biblical justice and loving kindness. And so be careful of whom you follow, and whom you listen to. Now, I know that there's a lot more that can be said on that matter, and if you'd like, I'm happy to talk with you offline about that. Feel free to do that. Here's my question for you. How will you live? How will you live? As you've heard here in Micah 6, verse 8, God has commanded all of humanity to live in a particular way. So how will you respond to that, especially if you're listening to this, and you don't believe in Jesus Christ? Or consider all that we've heard and said today. There's a lot there for you to wrestle with. Now, for those of you who are Christians, right, it's up to you to pursue biblical justice and loving kindness. And that's only going to happen as you walk obediently with God. So if you're not willing to put the time or the effort in, into knowing uh, God's wills and ways through His Word, you're not going to be able to do justice and to love kindness. You won't even desire to do it would be my guess. In fact, I think we could even flip that statement around and say it this way The degree to which you're doing biblical justice and loving kindness reveals the quality of your relationship with God. I'll say that again. Think about it for a second. Chew on it. The degree to which you're doing biblical justice and loving kindness reveals the quality of your relationship with God. They're connected. Your relationship with God ought to drive you to do justice and love kindness. So if you're not doing justice and loving kindness, what does that say about your relationship with God? Those are some hard things we need to chew on this morning. And really what I'm challenging you to do is not take my word for it, but to pour over God's word, to study it, to allow it to wash over you, and to challenge you, and to guide you in how you navigate standing for justice. Allow God's word to fuel your fire to see righteousness win the day. Another question you might ask yourself is this. Am I moved to action by the injustice that I see around me? Am I moved to action by the injustice that I see around me? Because the answer is, you ought to be. I ought to be. God cares about injustice. And if we know his will and ways, then we're going to walk in those will and ways. So how will you meet pressing needs in your community? Or, even at a greater level, how will you use the resources, the skills, the abilities that God has given you to seek justice and mercy in your nation? God has put you here on this earth at this time for a reason. I believe that. I hope you believe that. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. He wants you to represent and reflect Him. That's why you're here. So how do you represent and reflect him in this season? It may be that you partner with Compassion International to do biblical justice. It may mean that you do that with other godly ministries. I want to throw up a, a handful of them that our church partners with here in the metro to put on your radar. First is Garden Gate Ranch. It's a relatively new ministry that helps rescue people out of human sex trafficking great ministry to be involved with in doing justice and loving kindness. Second one is Parent Teen, which is helping teenage mothers as they walk through that difficult situation in their life. It comes alongside of them, supports them, and encourages them. Agape Pregnancy Center stands up for the life of the unborn and helps support those families who are, you know, facing an unplanned pregnancy, often single moms there. How about Wildwood Hills Ranch? Which works sort with of at risk youth to try to show them the love of God in their life and see them uh, depart from the ways that they have been living in and to know there's a better way. Or Freedom for Youth, which seeks to empower youth to lead transformed lives. All of these ministries are working from the position of loving God and knowing God. They are seeking to do biblical justice. You can read about them or click through to their uh, webpages on our website at slash ministry partners. What I want to challenge you to do is to consider how is God calling you to be involved in doing justice and loving kindness? What does it look like for you to walk obediently with your God? And Once you identify it, once you've spent some time noodling on that, then act on it. Do something about it. Well, here's the final thing that you need to know about living in God's world. It comes from verses 9 through 16. Let's finish reading uh, Micah 6 now. Here's what it says. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth." Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. There shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their councils, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. So once again, God is telling his people about his contention with them. This is how I will respond to your rebellion. He will hold them accountable. That's what he says. His justice, his justice and holiness will not allow him to overlook their sin and their rebellion. He must do something. And his word has clearly laid out how they're to live. But they have spurned it. They've rejected it. They don't care. And now God holds them accountable, right? He says, therefore, it's because of how you've lived, this is how I'm responding. And their specific sins were violence, lying, deceiving with their tongues and false measures. They were cheating and robbing one another of their possessions by using false weights. And God says, I'm not going to let this sin go unaddressed. Your sin is what is leading to my judgment. They have no one else to blame. It says for the Israelites, you'll be cursed and you'll be unable to be satisfied. It doesn't matter how much you eat. It doesn't matter how hard you work. It's never going to be enough. It doesn't matter whether your crops are stolen by opposing armies or God himself Supernaturally destroys them. The results are the same. You are left wanting. You see, they had walked in the wicked ways of the kings of Samaria. They turned aside to pagan worship. They depressed those who were weaker, and now they were bearing the consequences of it. Now you might say, well, that's Old Testament, though. Like, that's not how it is in the New Testament, right? Well, let me show you how things play out in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. Remember, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 say this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God was faithful to hold Israel accountable for their sin. God will be faithful to hold you and and me accountable for our sin. We all reap what we sow. So as we close, I want to leave you with two questions. First one is this. What are you sowing? What kind of seed are you sowing with your life? What is it producing? Is it sowing to the flesh, which reaps corruption? Or are you sowing to the Spirit, which reaps eternal life? Second question is this. What account will God call you to give one day? What account will God call you to give one day? We all have to stand before him. We all have to give an account. What will your account be? Right, those are some humbling questions to end with. I hope you'll take time to chew on them and ponder it this week. And, and as we close, as we get ready to pray, I just want to say thank God for Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you have made a way for us to be rescued and redeemed and we're not left dead in our sin. We can change. And so as you consider what we've studied and learned Today, if you're in Christ, you're made new. You have the opportunity to obey, to do justice, and to to love kindness. So let's pray and ask God to help us follow in Jesus' footsteps. Jesus, we just come before you right now, and, and we thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for your rescue and redemption. Father, thank you that that was always your plan for your people, to rescue us through your Son. May our lives be offered up as a living sacrifice to you. May we be completely committed and totally aligned with your will and your ways. Lord, you have put us in the midst of a broken and hurting world with the call to be salt and light, with the call to be holy as you are holy. You have given us your spirit to empower us to do it. Would you help us to live that way? I pray that each one of us would wrestle with how we are to be salt and light, how we are to do justice and to love kindness. And Lord, if there is anyone who's here this morning uh, who's convicted that that they don't know you, or frankly, they know that they don't know you, I pray that they would wrestle with that. They would evaluate what we've heard here in Micah 6, that they cannot do biblical justice and love kindness apart from a saving relationship with you. Lord, please do a work in us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing to our great God.